Welcome to the Gardens Podcast. This message titled Identity Tested was given by Bill Dogtrum and is the second in our series, The Kingdom of God. Okay, uh, last week uh, Darren introduced a new series that we're beginning uh, on the um, Gospel of Mark and we're just going to wander slowly through the Gospel of Mark for, for a while. Uh, and the frame that we're using to kind of set this up is what happens when the kingdom of God meets chaos. When, the, when, when we are in times of chaos, what does it mean for us to follow Jesus? And he set this up last week um, by framing the gospel of Mark against the backdrop of the Old Testament. And particularly the story of creation in Genesis, that's how Mark begins his gospel, you'll notice uh, at verse 1, the, the, if you've got a, a Bible, open it up because we're just going to invite you to kind of walk through it with us here. Um, <clears throat> Genesis um, is reflected in the very first ver- book of the Gospel of Mark, or first verse, rather, of the Gospel of Mark. Um, yeah, thanks, uh, Jordan. Anybody need a Bible? If you need one, we've got a bunch here, and you're welcome to borrow them or take them if you need to. Uh, we've got one here. Thank you, sir. Um, and uh, we're, anyway, so we're in, in, the, in the Gospel of Mark, second gospel in the, in the New Testament. And you'll notice that the second word, or more, depending on what version you're looking at, in the first verse is, this is the beginning of the gospel. This is the genesis of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, so Darren pointed out last week that this is Mark's allusion to a new beginning, that whereas we had a Genesis story at the beginning of time, we now have another Genesis, another story, another way of beginning. And it's instead of the, the creation setting the frame for that, now it's the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ that reframes everything in a way similar to that, but with new beginnings. So in the Genesis account, what you've got is God's speaking order over chaos, right? That's how creation came to be. In the Mark account, this new beginnings, this new Genesis, you have Jesus coming who is the word being spoken into the chaos of the human condition and bringing order to the chaos um, uh, of the human, human condition. This is the good news that Jesus has come to bring. So he then set it up. Uh, against the backdrop of the prophet Isaiah, uh, as, as Jesus uses that uh, prof- prophetic word in the Old Testament to kind of be the backdrop, the, the, the framing device for his understanding of his own ministry, and so people would know who he was and what he came to do. Uh, and then, uh, Darren didn't do this last week, uh, but it doesn't show up until this week, so I want to also suggest that the other framing text in the Old Testament is the book of Psalms. So Genesis, Isaiah, and Psalms are the framing structures that make sense of the Gospel of Mark. And that's where we pick it up today. Uh, John came last week announcing that, that Jesus would come as one who, uh, unlike John baptizing in water, Jesus comes to baptize, to immerse, to, to, to change the structure of people's lives based on their encounter with him um, in the spirit. Uh, That very same spirit 
Genesis, that breathed life into the human being in the first place. Remember, dust plus the breath of life, the spirit of God is what it means to be a human person. And so we've got that that going on. All right, so now we pick it up, verse 9. It came about uh, that in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit, like a dove, descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens saying, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. And immediately the Spirit impelled or drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by the Satan. And he was with the wild beasts and the angels were ministering to him. So we're just going to spend time in these these few verses this morning. Back up at verse 9, kind of the framing uh, structure in those days is is, uh, John's way or Mark's way rather of inviting us into this conversation. So he is saying, this is not something I've manufactured. He's saying this is geographically located in time and space. This is an event that we have, somebody had, they had the ability could take pictures of. This is something that occurred. This is not something we have generated. Please notice that Mark is writing as a defense of the Christian belief uh, as Peter heads to trial. Peter the apostle, uh, disciple of Jesus, is on trial for his life in Rome. Uh, he downloads, by the power of the Spirit, his recollections. And Mark, who is his nephew, transcribes Peter's understanding. So the gospel of Mark comes primarily through Peter. It's the first gospel written. Both Matthew and Luke make thorough use of the gospel of Mark when they write their versions, their stories, their theologies of Jesus. So this is one of the earliest gospels that we have, and Mark wants to be understood. This is not some spiritual occurrence. There was a man named Jesus. He came from a place, Nazareth, in Galilee. He, um, there, there, it was located in time uh, with, the, with the Baptist. So that's where, what he's doing in verse 9 there. He came to be baptized by John in the Jordan. You'll notice Mark just does not spend any time on that. It's not because it's not important. It's that it's not germane to what he's trying to do here, which is trying to reference us uh, in terms of what Jesus came to do. So John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. Jesus uh, is reminded by John in both of the other Gospels, Mark and Luke, that he doesn't need to be baptized for the purpose of repentance. And Jesus transforms what John is doing into a baptism of righteousness. That is to say, we are doing this not simply to repent for having done wrong things, but to introduce a new way of entry into righteousness. So we want to fulfill, he says, righteousness. And John's baptism, rather than being a a baptism of repenting for what I've done wrong, now becomes an invitation into how to live right. Okay? So Jesus then serves as our model in this. Coming up out of the water then, as John baptizes 
Jesus into the waters of the Jordan River and brings him up out of the water, coming down. And then now here's where if you've got a pencil or a pen and you want to underline this, uh, verse 10, immediately, um, that's, by the way, going to show up often in, in Mark. Mark is the kind of the MTV gospel. It just kind of blitzes at lightning speed all the way through. His favorite word is immediately. Everything happens quickly in the Gospel of Mark. So uh, that's one of the, one of the marks of, the, of Mark. Yes, sorry. Um, uh, coming up out of the water. Now, here's, here's what we're after. He saw the heavens opened. Um, if we're not careful, we're going to think that there is a vertical understanding that coming down out of the sky is a dove that rests on Jesus in the, the Holy Spirit like a dove resting on him. But that's not what Mark says. What he says is the heavens opened. So the space that, that exists between this understanding of the world and the spiritual reality that we live in, all of a sudden the barrier that prohibited uh, people seeing into that parallel reality is gone. And Jesus is able to see, and, uh, and in some of the other Gospels, others are able to see into that parallel reality. So are you with me on this? So we're not alone in this room. There are camped around us spiritual entities. The Old Testament says angels encamp around those who fear the Lord. So there is a spiritual dimension that is beyond the physical dimension that we live in. I hope I'm not freaking anybody out. But we need to be aware of that. That, that when, when Jesus says later on that the kingdom is at hand, what he means is that the kingdom that is always all around you is now available for you to enter. It is within your grasp. So all that happens in this moment is that the barrier between the material worldview and the spiritual worldview, that barrier disintegrates for a moment. And out of the heavens, out of that spiritual reality, out of that spiritual universe, so to speak, this Holy Spirit comes and rests on Jesus. The word here, rests, uh, means it has this idea of a permanent uh, place of resting. Often in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came upon people for time and tasks right? Some, they needed help for a specific thing that God had called them to do. The Holy Spirit came, rested for that moment, and then was gone. Here it says the Spirit rests on Jesus, and the implication is permanently, all right? So the Holy Spirit comes like a dove, descends on him, and a voice comes out of the space, out of the space around their ears, not from the sky, but out of the heavens. Everybody good with me on, 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 on heavens? Okay, just checking, because I feel like I've gotten going here, and now I'm rolling downhill really fast, and I'm not sure if anybody's still on board. So anyway, so the heavens, space around your ears, sun, moon, and stars, the place of God's residence. Those three things are the heavens. And out of that reality comes a voice. This freaks me out every time I hear this. Where does it... Because us, we're spatially oriented, right? We want distance. We want texture. We want proximity. So we want to know where did the voice come from? And that's John... Mark here is just saying, 
out of the space around your ears, imagining the whole universe echoing with this word. With me? This is my, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. So now, now we don't know who else, if anybody else heard this. Because the text says, look at verse 10 there, or uh, verse, verse, yeah, verse 10. Jesus saw the heavens opening, and a voice out of the heavens came speaking to him. So it's not, this is my beloved son, but you are my beloved son. So whether the revelation of who Jesus was was available to everybody or not, we don't know. But what the text says, what Mark says in relating what Peter told Mark, and Peter probably present shortly thereafter this scene, Jesus hears, Jesus sees, Jesus is aware of who he is in this moment. And the language of you are my beloved son and you I am well pleased is the language of identity. It's the language of who he understands himself to be. Now, Mark and and none of the other gospel writers, with the exception of Luke, in one brief snapshot, give us any idea of what was happening prior to this event. You'll notice here that in the gospel of Mark, we don't even have a Christmas story. Right? We're just kind of plopped down into the middle of things and, and, and we pick up Jesus' life story at about age 30. So who is this? Darren made the point last week that in the very language, by the time you've gotten through verses 1 and 2, you know who he is. That is continuing to develop. And as a reader, now we have an awareness that maybe even the people at that time didn't have that Jesus heard this mark of identity. You are my beloved son. In you I am well pleased. And here's where the Old Testament echo comes in. The first part of this uh, text, you are my beloved son, is a quote from Psalm 2, verse 7. It's a coronation psalm. It's the psalm that was sung as kings were crowned in Israel. So this is the first language that Jesus hears. This is my beloved son, echoing Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, declaring in that echo that this is a king after the order of David, after the monarchy of David. This is my beloved son. So that's the first thing. But then the second one is a very strange one. In you I am well pleased isn't from Psalm 2. It's from Isaiah 42, verse 1, and there it is in reference to a servant. There it is in reference to someone whose ministry, whose life is focused on service. And it sets us up for what in Isaiah are the songs of the suffering servant as we move into the 50th chapters of Isaiah. So you've got this strange juxtaposition uh, in this one phrase in which Jesus is hearing the heavens vibrate with articulate speech. You are my beloved son. You are the new king of Israel. You are the one who I am entrusting the rulership of the nation to. And you are a servant who will suffer. Those two things don't seem to go together. 
but they come together perfectly in the person of Jesus, who is both king and servant, who both triumphs and suffers. And in that tension is Jesus' identity. You're the one who comes to rule. You're the one who comes to serve. And can you hear also in that kind of paradox the echo of Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, 27, 28. Let us create humankind to be our image and let them rule over the fish of the sea, birds of the air, right? Um, What does rule mean? It doesn't mean have authority over in the sense of telling things what to do. It has the meaning of stewardship. Let them steward the earth. Let them serve the earth. Plants, animals, and so on. So in Jesus, you see what Mark, I think, is trying to do here. He's trying to say, this is who this is. This is what he's about. This is what he comes to do. He comes to rule in the sense of care. He comes to have authority in the sense of liberation. He comes as the beloved Son of God in whom God is well pleased to serve you. Isn't that, I don't know if that makes the hair stand up in the back of your neck. If I had any hair in the back of my head, I would, it would be standing up. Um, so we get this thing going on here, right? So that's the first thing. And then I want you to notice now what the Spirit who has come to dwell upon Him does next. Verse 12. Immediately, right, the Spirit impelled there's a, the, the, the Greek word here is as, about as strong as you can get. The, the language of impelling, of driven, of, of compelling. It's not an invitation. It's a, it's, a, it's a push out the door of this moment of identity to where? To a wilderness. To a desert. For what purpose? He was in the wilderness... He was in the desert for 40 days being tempted, being tested, being tried, being put in the crucible of the desert with the heat turned up and the pressure applied to be tempted by, and some of you were anxious when I retranslated Satan's Satan, and I put a definite article in there. That's because that's what the text actually says. It does not say Satan. Satan is not a proper name. It's a function. It's a role. It's what someone in the court of God does. So his task in this moment is to push the identity question of Jesus. Anybody nervous? You doing okay? Because all the Satan is doing here, all the prosecuting attorney is doing here is his job. His job in this role is to simply say, really, really, really. You heard from God. Really? You're his beloved son. Really? He's well pleased with you. Well, look around. Does this look like well pleased to you? Anybody feel the pressure of that kind of opposition? Right? By the way, Genesis chapter 3, this is precisely the same role 
that was occupied this time in Genesis 3 by a serpent who said to the woman, Really? Do you know who you are? No, no, no. If you eat the apple, you'll be like God. She did not have the sense of herself to say what? Wait, time out. We're already like God. We are already the image of God. We are already filled with His Spirit. It does not get better than this. And instead she said, Ooh, that looks good. And I'm, I'm hungry, kind of, sort of. And besides, what could be wrong with wanting to be wise? What's being tested there is her grip on her identity. Does she know who she is simply because the Father has told her who she is? And is that enough? You see? Uh, by the way, did you catch the glint? How many days was he in the desert? Forty. Forty appears regularly. Who's that about? That's about Israel. In the desert, wandering around for 40 years after having been delivered from Egypt. Remember, Darren brought us through that journey in Exodus last time, right? Here we are right again. Away in the wilderness. Away in the desert. Jesus First thing that happens is 40 days, he is in the desert. He is, that's intended to remind them both of Moses and of the children of Israel whose story they know as clearly as you know the story of the founding of this great country of ours, yours really, rather specifically. Um, I'm Canadian, so it's not mine. But anyway, um, you, you know that story. You know the, the journey, Right. You have that, and as clearly as that is imprinted on your minds about your nation, it was imprinted on their minds about their nation. And as soon as they get that sense of 40, they, they immediately start to make the connections. How did Israel, by the way, do you remember what those 40 years in the desert was about? It was about testing, and it was about testing identity. Because of the, remember we were in the 10 words here in the last few, month, few weeks? And what were the 10 words about? This is what it means to be my people. You are my holy bride. You are my children. You are my beloved. Now this is how I need you to live so that you can be helpful to me in saving the world. Remember? And how did they do? Not so much. What was being tested? Their ability to follow the rules? or their grip on who they were. I'm going to argue it was their grip on who they were that was being tested, and they didn't do so good. So what happens now? Do you, you see that you're starting to make some of the connections here? Genesis of Jesus, Psalms, Isaiah, we're back in Exodus, 40 days, we're in the wilderness, and now a new man. Paul will call him a second Adam, is being tested. He is driven by the Spirit out into the desert for 40 days to be tested by the prosecuting attorney, to be tested by the Satan. The, 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 literally, the word means accuser. To be accused, to be tested, to be put in the crucible of that desert and to feel the weight 
of life crush down upon him and feel the heat bubble up. Some of you are in, in, in situations exactly like that right now, whether it's in your, in, your, in your job or in your marriage or in your relationships with other people. And what is being tested for you is exactly what was being tested for Jesus. Do you know who you are? Do you have a grip on what God has said about you? Or is it up for grabs? Right? I want you to notice the outcome. Mark does not give us a great deal of detail here, but he gives us a detail that the other two gospel writers who talk about this event don't give us. And that is the one that's found in verse 13. He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by the Satan, and he was with the wild beasts. Now you want to say, what the heck? Is this just a description of the animal life that lived in the wilderness at the time Jesus happened to be there? I think possibly. But I think, I believe that the text of Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to be the image of God in Genesis chapter 1? Let them rule over the fish, animals, birds. I think Mark is echoing what it might look like for an ideal human being to be present and to succeed at the test so that the wild beasts can trust him. That's, I think, what Mark is suggesting to us. That it's just not a throwaway line to describe an event. It is theologically loaded and in, in which Jesus is, is having passed this test. He did not lose the grip on his identity. He knew that he was both king and servant, both deliverer and crucified one. He knew who he was, didn't lose the grip on that when it was under the pressure of that 40 days in the desert. And as a result of that, in, in this language here, Mark is saying the animals could trust him. Why couldn't the animals trust us in Genesis chapter 3? Do you remember? Because we've lost a grip on who we are. And every time you lose the sense of who you are, you take it out on those who you perceive to be weaker than you. In one form or another. If you have physical size, you will take it out on people who are smaller than you. This is what bullying is about. Yes? Right? This is what bullying is about. This is often what male domination over women is about. When I've lost the sense of my strength, when I've lost the sense of who I am, when I've lost the sense of my belovedness and God's pleasure in me, I will seek to manufacture that by dominating it over someone else. If I'm in a, how many of you have been in a, a position of perceived weakness with, with somebody whose power you recognize in a moment is really coming out of terror? It's coming out of insecurity. It's coming out of fear. It's coming out of all they, they know who they are is because it says so on the name tag on their door. But they don't have any sense of what that means at the center of who they are. Do you, do you, do you see what's going on here? 
And Jesus, because he has a grip on who he is, he knows who he is. He's heard the voice echoing in his mind and his heart. He's not going to get lost in the wilderness under the pressure of that experience. The animals can trust him. And then furthermore, the angels are ministering to him. There is supernatural assistance available to the person whose grip in who they are, of who they are, is not loosened, not weakened. Do you remember I talked to you about that thin space that separates our visible universe from the surrounding universe, the, the angels of the Lord encamp around those who fear Him, etc., right? The person who has a good solid grip on who he is can be trusted to see through that curtain, so to speak, and get a glimpse of what's actually there. Because the truth is, if you had eyes to see when you go to work tomorrow morning, when you are in tension with your husband or your wife or your kids, when you have conflict with a roommate, when you're struggling to sit in a classroom and get what's going on and you feel like an idiot, you feel stupid, you just don't know, you look around and everybody else seems to be getting it and you don't, and you feel completely isolated, you need to know if you only had eyes to see, you're not alone. You are surrounded by supernatural beings who are kindly disposed to you, who want to help you. You're not alone. Now, you might not ever see them. You need to have a real good, solid grip on identity to see angels without getting freaked out. Remember, what's the first thing that angels always say in the both Old and New Testaments? Don't be afraid. Why did they say that? Because the natural response to angels is, oh, my God. Right? So the first thing angels say is, don't be afraid. I suspect, you know, these are not hallmark angels. These are not, like, cute angels. Cute and angels are not words that go together in Scripture. Okay? So that's, what, that's what's going on in this text. We are invited into a participation in a reality, in a certain kind of reality. And here's how I want to, here's, you, you can probably tell where I'm going with this at the end here. Because I think this, when the kingdom of Jesus confronts chaos, one of the first things that has to be tested is identity. Do you get who you are? Do you hear what God has spoken over you? And can you hang on to it? when pressure increases. Sometimes, how many of you know that sometimes the biggest pressure doesn't come from outside at all? It's your own stuff bubbling up inside, right? You're an idiot. How could you say something so stupid? Why did you do that 15 years ago? Right? I've got scenarios in my... In my uh, I, I, could, I, could, I could pull it up today of a scenario in my mind in my first church when I was a 20-year-old kid learning how to pastor, 21-year-old kid learning how to pastor, and I said something that was just absolutely the stupidest, most harmful thing I could have said to the cutest 7-year-old little blonde-haired little girl. And I can pull that up in my consciousness 
in a, in a heartbeat. Anybody else have stories like that? Oh, I'm so glad. Just half a dozen of us <laughs> were jerks in our previous, you know. No, we've all got stories like that. That's why we live in denial. It's self-protective. We can't afford our own stories. And Jesus just says, you're not alone. You've got help. I will help you keep a grip on what God has said about you. When you feel afraid, when you feel anxious, when you feel threatened, you don't have to resort to the power of your size or your gender or your position. I've got you. Can you hang on to what you've heard? To what is true about you? Because the truth is, if the heavens vibrate with the voice of God, that's true. If the voice inside my own head doesn't resonate, doesn't agree with what God says, guess which one of us is wrong? Some of us need an alignment of internal reality this morning. Some of us are right in the middle of that wilderness. You're feeling the pressure from outside or inside. Pulling, pushing, the heat is up, the pressure is on, and you're just hanging on to who you are for dear life. I'd like to pray with you this morning. Brian and Jenny and, and the rest of our team are going to come back and we're going to take some time just to pray for the next few minutes. And if you're here like that and we can pray with you, we want to do that. Uh, I'm just going to invite you to stand where you are. Uh, we're, this is part of our structure, and if you can't stand, we're going to pray for you. Billy, I know that this is something that's important to you, and we want to do that. But others of you who are here, if, you, if, if this is where you're at right now, do you mind just quickly standing where you are? And as soon as people stand around you, I'm going to invite those of you around them just to find, move. You're deputized. I love what Darren did last week. You're deputized as prayer team today. All right? So go and stand with them and pray with them. We just want to take a few minutes like this. The second thing I want to suggest is if, as, if you're not praying with somebody, but you feel a pull of Jesus to go and do that, maybe somebody who's not standing, do it. We believe that the Holy Spirit can gently move us into ministerial statuses and positions and postures. So let's take, take some time this morning and just pray for one another, okay? And uh, as, as we do, let me close this part in a word of prayer, and then we're going to uh, uh, um, just take some time to minister to one another, okay? Lord Jesus, we just thank you so much for helping us in this season. We recognize that sometimes the Satan is just doing his job, but sometimes, Lord, we just feel he does it way too well and enjoys it way too much. And, and we feel torn apart. We feel fragmented by stuff that's happened to us, by things that people have done to us, by things that we've done to ourselves, by the, by the pain and paralysis of our own lives. And so, Lord, we take some time this morning to, to ask you to help us get a grip on who you've spoken us to be. Help us, oh God, to remember, especially in the face of, of these fragmenting pressures, in the face of the chaos of our lives, who we are. And then as we move through this gospel, to remind ourselves why we are who we are, what that means to this world. 
Help us in this, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to hear other messages from the Garden, or if you would like to find out more about the Garden Church, check out our website at thegardenlb.org. Come to wait.